Well, good morning, sisters and brothers. Uh, this morning we come to one of the most familiar stories in the whole Old Testament. So let's pray that God would help us uh, see with fresh eyes uh, new things, uh, or be reminded of all things that we need to be reminded of as we look at it together. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we pray that you open our eyes and our hearts to see, understand, believe, and obey uh, what you are telling each one of us in this passage. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Bible tells us over and over again that God is a God who saves his people. Uh, in fact, the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. And our passage today uh, shows us a facet of the pattern of his salvation. Uh, we will see how and why he saved his ancient people, Israel, and how and why he saves us. Last week, we saw how Saul, the first king of Israel, who reigned more than a thousand years before Christ, failed to trust God and obey him. Uh, so God told the prophet Samuel to secretly anoint an unlikely young boy named David as king, and the Spirit of God left Saul and rushed upon him. David became the Anointed One, or in Hebrew, the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ. Now, in our passage today, Saul is still the king. David's identity as God's Chosen One is hidden, and in fact, at this point, he is still looking after his father's sheep, and Saul is out on the battleground. The first scene in the passage is one of that battleground. The Philistine forces have come into Israelite territory, and they are camped on the hill on one side of the Valley of Elah. The Israelite army, on the other hand, is uh, in the valley uh, on the other side, uh, and so the valley itself is between them. And from the camp of the Philistines, we see a big, big man emerging. His name is Goliath of Gath, and he is, in verse 4, six cubits and a span, more than nine feet tall. He has a helmet of bronze, a very heavy coat of mail, bronze armor, a bronze javelin, a thick spear with a, with a very heavy iron head, and his own personal shield bearer. This is all state-of-the-art weaponry for the time. And so we've now got this huge warrior in the best and latest armor. And no wonder he is so confident to be able to issue a dare to the ranks of Israel in verses 8 to 10. Why have you come out to draw us up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. Saul and all Israel are dismayed, greatly afraid. Back in chapter 8, the Israel had demanded a king to lead them into battle. God gave them Saul, the tallest man in Israel, so if someone had to fight Goliath, it ought to be him, but frankly, he wouldn't have a hope. Israel would just stand there and watch their king getting his head chopped off, and then leaderless, it would face a crushing defeat from the Philistine army. Israel needed a leader and a savior, but there was no one equal to the task. At this point, the narrator of the story introduces again to David and his family. This is David's public unveiling. David is the son of Jesse, who by now, verse 12, is an old man. Jesse had eight sons. David's the youngest. His oldest brothers, verse 14, had followed Saul to the battle. David's job was to look after his dad's sheep in Bethlehem. But he'd be sent back and forth to Saul's camp from time to time with supplies for his brothers. Now, the standoff has been going on for 40 days. Goliath has repeated his unanswered challenge to the Israelites every morning, every evening, exacerbating their shame. 
But today, Jesse sends David to the battleground with some food for his brothers, and very prudently, a gift for their boss. And he tells David to try and get some news. So David gets up early in the morning, leaves the sheep with a keeper, takes the supplies, heads off for the battleground. He can hear the noise of the soldiers shouting, getting ready for battle. And when he gets closer, he sees that the Israelites and the Philistines are lined up for battle, facing each other across the valley. He leaves the stuff with the keeper of the baggage, verse 22, and runs to meet his brothers. And as they speak, Goliath comes out with his usual taunt. David hears what he says, sees the Israelite army backing away in fear, once again humiliated before their enemy. As they cower, David hears them talking. Have we seen this man who has come up? Verse 25. Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. Sounds like a good offer. But David is smart enough to try and verify first what he's overheard. He asked the men around what the reward will be for the one who, in verse 26, will kill this Philistine and take away the reproach of Israel. Israel, who are meant to be God's people, have been shamed by the one David calls in verse 26, an uncircumcised Philistine. Back in verse 10, the Philistine has said, I defy the armies of Israel. But the way David sees it, he has, in verse 26, defied the armies of the living God. The people confirm what Saul has offered as a reward. But as he hears all this, Eliab, David's oldest brother, gets angry. He says to David in verse 28, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Man looks on the outside, God looks at the heart. Eliab thinks he can see David's heart, but he can't. And he treats God's anointed with contempt. David just responds like a younger brother. <laughs> what have I done now? <laughs> was it not with a word? Was it not but a word? In other words, can't I say anything? All right. uh, so David is despised and rejected by his brother. Uh, David goes on to talk to other groups of men, asking the same questions, getting the same answers, making the same waves. And eventually the word gets back to Saul, uh, who sends for him. And David says to Saul in verse 32, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Saul's not convinced. You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight against him, he says. You are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David, we discover here, is no ordinary kid. He replies in verse 34, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, and struck him, delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Now that's, that's pretty impressive. Catching a lion or a, beard, or a bear by the beard. <laughs> Not all shepherds can do that. David was God's anointed one, God's chosen leader of his people. And so the lion and the bear were just practice for the bigger task. David's care and protection of his sheep would foreshadow his care and protection of God's people. We know this, but Saul doesn't. Yet David continues confidently in verse 36. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, 
for he has defied the armies of the living God. God has strengthened David in the past to kill lions and bears in supernatural ways, like Samson in the book of Judges. This Philistine is insulting God, so wouldn't he enable David to defeat him as well? David continues, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. So I've decided that this is worth a shot. Presumably there's half a chance that David was right and better than no chance at all. Go, he says, and the Lord be with you. And so in verse 38, Saul puts his own armor on David. The skeptic in me wonders if he wants people to see from afar, who see from afar to think that he's the one going out to meet Goliath, and if David succeeds, he can claim the credit. But most likely, he just wants to give David the best possible chance. Either way, it's significant to us as observers, because it's like David becomes the king, right? wearing the king's clothes, carrying his weapons. David puts them on, but he can't move. He says to Saul, I can't go in these. I haven't tested them. And so he takes them off. Uh, David will indeed become king one day in the place of Saul, but he won't be a king like Saul. So it's good that he's not going to battle in his clothes. David puts his sword down and once again picks up his shepherd's staff, which is really a long stick. He will go into this battle as a shepherd, not a warrior. He goes to a nearby brook and chooses five smooth stones, puts them in his shepherd's pouch. And with a stick in one hand and a sling in the other, he walks from behind the Israelite lines to approach the Philistine. The Philistine comes out from his camp with a shield-bearer in front of him for defense. And as he gets closer, he gets a better view of what Israel has sent out to fight him. And he, he can't believe his eyes. This smallish kid is good-looking and red-faced, but this is a serious battle, not a beauty contest. Here he is, the top-class warrior, Nine feet tall, state-of-the-art weaponry, and the Israelites are sending out a boy with a stick and a sling. I mean, how ridiculous is that? He begins to shout at David from afar. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And he curses David by his gods and says, Come to me, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. David shouts back to him in verse 45. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. When you think of Goliath and his weapons, a boy with a stick and a sling doesn't seem very impressive. But when you think of the almighty God who made and uphold the universe, a nine-foot man with a sword and spear and javelin seems even less impressive. It all depends on your perspective. And friends, that's always true, isn't it? The world seems so impressive and so powerful and therefore attractive, but it's always attractive to be on the side that's most powerful, to be on the right side of history, so they say. Many individuals and organizations and movements and nations with great power and influence and we may be tempted to be overly impressed by them. But it's all a matter of perspective. Put God in the picture and they're practically nothing. Can't mess with God and hope to win in the end.
David sees things rightly. He knows that God is indeed with him. He's the anointed one upon whom is God's spirit. And so he confidently responds to the Philistine in verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that this all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and a spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. The Philistine walks towards David. David runs towards him. He puts his hand in his bag, and he takes out a stone, and he slings it, and he goes flying towards the Philistine, and it hits him on his forehead, and the big, tall Philistine falls with his face to the ground. The Lord lifts up. And the Lord brings down. And today he has brought down the Philistine who defied him. Now remember, David has no sword. So he runs to the Philistine and uses his own sword to cut off his head. And when the Philistines see their champion is dead, they run away. The Israelites rise with a shout. They chase the Philistines all the way back to their own cities of Gath and Ekron. And all the way from the battlefield to those cities is marked with wounded or dead Philistines. And when the people of Israel come back from that, they plunder the Philistine camp. Through David, God has given them a great victory. But David would keep some mementos of that victory. And many years later, he would bring the head of the Philistine to Jerusalem and keep his armor in his tent. The last scene of the chapter, though, is a little strange. It starts with a flashback to when David was walking out to meet the Philistine. At that point, Saul turns to Abner, his army commander, and says, Whose son is that? Abner doesn't know, and so Saul tells him to find out. Inquire for me whose son that is. As soon as David brings him back from the battle, Abner brings him to Saul with Goliath's head still in his hand, and Saul once again asks the same question, this time to David himself. Whose son are you, young man? And David answers, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And so three times in these three verses, the narrator wants us to hear the question, whose son? And then that's the end of the story. Well, what can we learn from this passage? We can learn to follow David's example and trust God, can't we? That is right. But we've got to be careful here because it doesn't mean that we can do anything and fight any battle uh, if we trust God. This is not just saying, uh, identify the giants in your life, label them as Goliath, and you be David, and you go and tackle them. And God will give you the victory in whatever battle you fight, no matter how improbable, if you only step out in faith. Uh, no, my friends, this, this passage is not saying that. You see, it's not as if anyone in the Israelite army could have defeated Goliath if they trusted God like David. Uh, David was different because David was the anointed one. God's spirit was upon him. God empowered him to save the lambs from the lions and the bears. And as the anointed one, the one to whom the kingdom was promised by God, God was going to save his people through him. So we can and should trust, uh, follow David's example of trusting God. But we need to trust God to do what he promised to do, not necessarily what we want him to do. We can also learn negatively from the example of Goliath. There's no point trusting in strength or technology when you're fighting the living God. 
though people do it all the time. Authorities in some countries think they can persecute the church and get away with it because they seem to be so powerful. Individuals oppress God's people and seek to hinder the growth of the gospel because they think God will not stand behind it. But he does and he will. Ultimately, those who defy God will come to a terrible end. So don't be like Goliath. We've also been reminded to keep a proper perspective on things. Whenever we face trials or troubles, it's important to see things from God's perspective and to trust in his promises. And whenever we see powerful people, philosophies or movements defying God, we mustn't be cowed by them. We know that God will bring them to judgment. And no matter how bad things seem, God will always vindicate his name in the end. No one will be able to stop that. All these things illustrate points that are true and helpful to remember. But none of them are the prime reason why God gave us his story here in his word. Because as we think about the narrative, we need to ask ourselves, where do we fit in the story? Now, many people would like to put themselves in the shoes of David. But we already know that David points forward, not to us, but to Jesus, the son of David, the true anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, God's ultimate king. David's life, as we have seen last week, is a foreshadowing of Jesus. So if David points forward to Jesus, then who are we like? Surely we find ourselves in the story not in David, but in the armies of Israel. We are God's people, threatened by a far more powerful enemy, Satan and sin, unable to help ourselves, cowering before our enemy because he is far more powerful than we are, and then saved by the coming of a saviour to participate in a great victory. David points forward to Jesus, God's King. And we are like the Israelites. But before David could be king, he first became our saviour. And that's the same for Jesus. Jesus saved us, his people, by being our representative. He represented his people. He fought on their behalf against Goliath. Jesus represented us and fought against the devil and sin on our behalf. He did what we could never do. We could never have defeated Satan by ourselves. We could never have won the victory over sin. But by his perfect life, and then his death on the cross in our place, he represented us. He stood there instead of us. He was the good shepherd who gave his life for his sheep, and in doing so, he won the victory. David looked unlikely. He was despised and rejected by his brothers as being pretentious and stupid. His weapons were not the weapons of power. Yet he trusted God despite the odds, because he knew he was God's anointed one. Jesus too was despised and rejected by his brothers. His family underestimated him, and so did his town and his nation. He came to his own, his own esteemed him not. He looked so unlikely when he went out for battle. His weapons were not the weapons of power. The only thing that looks more ridiculous than a boy trying to fight a giant with a stick is a man trying to save the world by hanging on a cross. And yet he did. For when he died on the cross, the perfect man who had lived that perfect life took our sins and our guilt. He took our punishment on our behalf so that we can be forgiven. He bore the full judgment on our sins so that God, on our behalf so that God could, could forgive us justly. And because we have been rightly and perfectly forgiven, 
The Satan, the accuser, cannot accuse us anymore. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The devil has no more power, no more leverage over us. We were taken out of his dominion and given new life in Christ. He cannot terrify us with death and judgment anymore because that has been settled by Jesus. So just like David won the victory for Israel, Jesus won the victory for us, for he trusted in God. Yes, going to Jerusalem to be crucified seemed foolish, just like going up to Goliath the way David did seemed foolish. But like David, Jesus knew that he was God's anointed king, and through him, God won the big victory for his people. And the proof of that was in the resurrection, where God brought Jesus back from the dead in victory, and because of that victory, because he's a savior, he would ultimately be the king. David saved his people Israel. Jesus saved us. That is so important. But there is something even more significant in this passage that David does than just saving God's people. Think back with me at the passage. What is it that's driving David to step up as the shepherd savior of God's people? Oh, remember what he said about that the Philistine was doing in verse 26. He brought reproach to Israel. In verse 26, and again in verse 36, he defied the armies of the living God. He said to Goliath himself in verse 45 that he had defied the armies of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. God and his people had been defied. They had been mocked, blasphemed, treated with contempt, put to shame by the uncircumcised Philistine. And David, God's anointed king, was concerned with the glory of God. Remember what he said, verse 47, God was going to give him the victory that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the spear and the sword. God saves his people through the apparent weakness of his anointed king, that the world might know his greatness and that his people might glorify him for his salvation. And friends, that's the same in the New Testament. God has saved us through the apparent weakness of his anointed king, Jesus the Christ, who fought as our representative. But there's something even more important as our salvation. As important as that might be, and that something is the glory of God. God saved us, his people, through the apparent weakness of his anointed king, that the world might know his greatness, and that we might glorify him for our salvation. God saved us for his glory. So let's make sure that we tell the world how great and wise our God is to have saved us in that way. Let us always love him, obey him, and honor him as the God who has saved us at the cross of his Son. Finally, remember how our passage finished? The victory of David raised that question, whose son is he? And the narrator drew that to our attention by bringing it up three times. Like David, Jesus was sent to the battleground by his father. And the victory of Jesus raises the same question. 
Whose son is he? And the answer of the New Testament comes loud and clear. Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh, but declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Whose son is he? You are the Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God. Brothers and sisters, God saves his people through the weakness of his Son, the Anointed King, that the world might know his greatness and his people might glorify him for his salvation. Let us indeed give him glory for the great salvation that he has won for us through his Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, the Anointed One, to save us from Satan and sin. Thank you that he has fought the battle on our behalf at the cross. And thank you for the victory that you have won for us there. Thank you for bringing glory to your name and your people through the shame of the cross. Help us, we pray, to tell the world how great you are for saving us in that way. Help us, we pray, to glorify you in our lives as we reflect on our salvation. And help us to keep seeing things your way rather than the way of the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.